Welcome to the April 2019 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined again by CJ McKinney, the Deputy Editor at Free Movement. This week we're starting with a very big Court of Appeal case on paragraph 3225 tax cases and the state of play on the new business visas, briefly. Um, There's one asylum judgment to review, several on deportation to cover, as well as a Strasbourg decision on damages for unlawful detention to mull over. We're then going to look at a few immigration appeal case laws, bits and pieces, and some non-Brexit EU law before finishing on the compensation scheme for victims of the Windrush scandal. If you'd like to claim CPD points for reading the material and listening to this podcast, then head over to www.freemovement.org.uk slash training and you can sign up there. Right, CJ, do you want to kick off? Yes, paragraph 3225. And as you mentioned, the Court of Appeal delivered a very significant judgment about refusing settlements to migrants whose tax affairs are supposedly not in order. Um, the decision was Bala Jigari and Secretary of State 2019 EWCA Civ 673. Uh, the Home Office's approach in these tax cases was quote unquote legally flawed. Um, the basis of it, I think, is that migrants who had given different tax numbers to HMRC and the Home Office were presumed to be dishonest without the chance to offer an explanation. Um, officials were, as we said, relying on paragraph 3225 of the immigration rules, which talks about it being undesirable for migrants to remain in the UK because of their conduct. And the court also felt that officials weren't looking properly at whether it was undesirable for people to stay, even if there were these tax issues. So a lot of procedural flaws in what the Home Office has been doing and a reprieve for many people affected, I suppose. Yeah, it's good news. And it, I think I have to say that the media coverage didn't quite match up to the um, the actual judgment. So um, the, the Court of Appeal quite pointedly said that there's nothing wrong with using paragraph 3225 in principle in these cases and that it isn't just limited to national security issues, which have been a kind of frankly, slightly more political than um, sort of legal argument that had been put forward in the media um, and yeah, the, the, the paragraph itself clearly includes conduct which is, is below that involving national security. But the Court of Appeal was very critical of the way the Home Office had behaved in these cases, um, said that it had been procedurally unfair, basically. And um, I know it, it, the actual implications of that are a bit limited, possibly, because a lot of these cases have already been to court. It's hard to see. It, it, basically, it's too late, really, this Court of Appeal judgment, um, because the, a lot of them have already gone to court. Saying that the process was unfair is, is all very interesting from an academic point of view, but it, it's no use at all to those who've already been subjected to it. And so you couldn't now go back to the upper tribunal and say, hey, you know, this whole thing has been unfair all along. Can you not take a second look? I think it, it's it's certainly not, if you forgive the double negative, it's not unhelpful, if you see what I mean, in that... Um, it's it's sort of more grist to the mill, and it reinforces the argument that um, you know you need the, the judge has to look at these things themselves. It reduces the weight to be given to what the Home Office is saying here. It's very clear that the Home Office is just presumed guilt essentially in in these cases. Um, but it, it, as I say, it's too late to actually be of much procedural use to those who've been affected by the scandal. Well, that's a shame. Um, in terms of the people who do uh, might be able to rely on it, I believe that permission to appeal this to the Supreme Court has been refused, um, although I'm not 100%, but that is sort of the word on the street. Um, so to that extent, I suppose, good news, but uh, as you say, possibly too late for some. 
Moving on to business immigration, there is still a lot of chatter around the new innovator and startup visas. Um, the rules for these are in Appendix W of the immigration rules, and there is now Home Office guidance for its officials on these visas, and that came out right at the start of April, if you, if you missed that. Uh, Colin, we will be sort of brief, because we did talk about this in the past podcast last time but we were saying that these new visas will be quite hard to come by potentially because you need endorsement from one of these 24 organizations and and they didn't seem keen to deal with individual applicants just to sort of an update on that we have since contacted all 24 and that's sort of borne out the thesis basically hardly any of them told us that they would deal with someone who just has a business idea and wants a visa for it um you you do have to be working with the endorsing organization already or applying to their existing sort of business accelerator schemes. Um, so sort of confirmation um, of the sort of problems with that. And Nicola Carter has blogged for us about it as well. She says that the scheme needs an urgent rethink, doesn't seem fit for purpose, and other business immigration lawyers are saying the same. Yeah, and that seems to be sort of proof in the pudding as well. I've just seen an FOI from um, a business immigration lawyer um, saying that uh, there have been zero applications apparently um, under this route as at a certain date. Um, so, um, you know, it, it really does look like it's problematic. And I, I wonder whether that's ultimately deliberate. Um, I mean, it could be uh, incompetence on the part of civil servants. It could be that they've you know, tried really hard to design a really great system for genuine innovators and to welcome people to, to start up businesses here in the UK, but they just haven't done a very good job. Or... You know, it could be that they've basically come up with rules that they think are very hard to meet um, and which is going to reduce the numbers of people coming in by this route. And um, that's possibly possibly not necessarily an either or. Maybe maybe it's, maybe it's a bit of both of those things. Well, we'll, we'll see. I, I, it was an interesting FOI that I think it was Andrew Chrisman did. He, he found that there were zero applications, but I think just in the first fortnight of the route. So maybe if, if he does another one in a few months, that'll give us um, an idea of whether it's a complete disaster or just uh, an early stage disaster. There is just a case on business immigration to discuss briefly, which is our Sajad and Secretary of State's 2019 EWCA Civ 720. This is about extending a tier one entrepreneur visa which is still possible, even though that route is closed to new applicants and replaced by the, the innovator route we just talked about. Mr. Sajad had put in well over the £200,000 business investment required for this visa extension, but it wasn't in one of the specific forms, specific ways of investment that the immigration rules allow. Um, the money was definitely his. It was definitely sort of in the spirit of what you're supposed to do, but it was referred to as a director's loan and a director's loan has to come with some paperwork for it to count as a qualifying investment. So Mr. Sajad, very much in compliance, as I say, with the spirit of the rules, but ends up with no visa. Yeah, which is astonishing, really. I and mean, the guy had invested almost half a million pounds by the sounds of things of his own money. And that was acknowledged by everybody that was accepted. Um, and yet, you know, basically the Home Office is saying, tough you didn't include the right paperwork therefore we're refusing you and you you lose it all basically incredible just incredible moving on uh sadly we won't dwell on it uh asylum there is one asylum case we want to discuss which is country guidance um to do with gay men in in albania it is called bf tirana gay men albania cg 2019 ukut 93 iac the upper tribunal says there may well be a risk of persecution for gay Albanian men outside the capital city 
uh, but that they can usually move to Tirana, the capital, to avoid persecution. Presumably, Colin, that decision makes it more difficult then for such people to get asylum here? I'm not sure it necessarily makes it harder than it already was because it was pretty hard already I think to succeed on those claims um, and it, it's good to see I suppose um, to, to, to some extent some acknowledgement that there are problems in the rest of Albania but yeah it does it does make it pretty hard if you can relocate to Tirana. I don't think the grant rates for Albanian asylum seekers are particularly high in general are they? It's, it's not a country that many people are accepted from. Well, I can't. I, I'm, I've never looked at the stats for Albania. Actually. You get several different kinds of claims from Albania, and there's been a kind of um, uh, bit of a boost in the number of very young people who've been claiming asylum from Al- Albania. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's hard to it's hard to generalise too much because there are a few different categories of claim that I've come across from Albania. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, let's turn then to some cases on deportation. The Upper Tribunal has handed down two decisions on the system of automatic deportation for serious crimes, or what the Home Office considers serious crimes at any rate. They are called RA, Section 117C, Unduly Harsh Offence Seriousness, Iraq, 2019 UKUT 123 IAC. And the second case is MS, Section 117C6, Very Compelling Circumstances, Philippines, 2019 UK UT 122 IAC. Um, so across the two cases, they were linked. I think they were heard together. Um, the tribunal makes several discrete uh, separate points, which Alex in his article on the blog explains very well. Um, they're in the head notes as well. Um, I suppose the decisions bring some clarity to those points, separate points they address, Colin, but I suppose what I took from the piece was that this area just keeps getting more and more complicated. Yeah, and it's not helped by these kinds of um, sort of quasi-legal reported decisions where it's basically a, a matter of fact is being kind of presented as if it was a matter of law. And I'm not talking about by the appellant here, I'm talking about by the tribunal. And so this business about, you know, critical stage of a child's development and stuff, that's not really a legal question it's 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 a factual one and we don't really need reported decisions on those kind of things i'd have thought but um the tribunal seems to to disagree it's also it, i do find it a bit hard to get excited by yet more cases on this subject and you know they they tend to be a bit kind of ron seal like in that you know they've got this kind of uh descriptive uh title that they're given for the anonymity anonymity reasons and then the headnote tends to be fairly comprehensive as well and it, it just does what it says on the tin basically yeah fair enough i mean we the tribunal reports them so we report them but if they're um they may or may not be earth shattering well, you know it all boils down to it's really hard to win deportation cases and there's only so many ways you can you know, <laughs> sort of elaborate on that yeah certainly um i i've sort of danced around the specifics of these cases because i don't know how helpful it is to kind of reel off the the findings for people but was there anything particularly important that did strike you from these or just they were just as you say, matter of fact, and it's difficult. Nah, matter of fact. <laughs> Excellent. Um, turning then to a slightly different aspect of deportation, we mentioned in the last podcast the tribunal case of JG uh, about how having children factors into sort of challenging deportation. Uh, we know from legislation that there is an exception where someone has a child and it would not be reasonable to expect the child to leave the United Kingdom. Uh, now, the finding in JG was that even where this child's departure from the UK is unlikely, the tribunal must still decide whether their departure would be reasonable. Um, the update now is that this finding in JG has now been upheld in the Court of Appeal. So 
a higher authority saying the same thing. Um, and that citation is Secretary of State and AB Jamaica 2019 EWCA Civ 661. Um, I, I find that again quite dense, Colin. Is there a better way of explaining it, perhaps? It's it's quite a useful one, this one, actually, I think. Um, and, and, you know, to be fair to Tribune, I think this one, this one is genuinely a bit on the legal side. So it, it's about... Um, the interpretation of different phrases that are, are used in both the the statute and also the the rules themselves, and the Home Office have been essentially trying to sidestep um, one of the kind of tests for an exception to deportation by saying that it didn't really arise in practice. So this question of whether it would be reasonable to expect the child um, to leave the UK wasn't really being considered because the child wasn't actually going to leave the UK and the, and the tribunal and then as you say the courts of appeal have said no this is a hypothetical question you've got to look at it um, that's what the statute says um, and that's 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 helpful it means that you know the test is actually being applied in practice now. Excellent so now upper tribunal and uh, court of appeal authority on that point let's go to immigration detention because the home office has updated its policy on bail accommodation we flagged last year on the back of a briefing from the excellent charity Bail for Immigration Detainees that it is uh, now very hard for people who don't have a home, basically, to get immigration bail. Um, they're entitled to, to bail accommodation if they've nowhere else to go, but the Home Office had basically scrapped the application process for this accommodation, so there was kind of no way of getting at it, um, which was sort of hideous and, and Kafkaesque, um, but there has been some movement on that now. And Pierre McClough from BID writes for us that there's now an application form for some people, Form 409. Um, but he does say that the process is still difficult even for lawyers to get their heads around this bail accommodation process, um, let alone individual detainees. Um, Colin, there seems very little pressure on the Home Office to improve things here. There's very little public sympathy for homeless undocumented migrants who who might have a criminal record yeah i mean the, the unofficial or sometimes official frankly policy is kind of um what the americans called self-deportation you know it's it's try to make life as miserable as possible for people so that they remove themselves from the uk and, and go back whence they came as far as the home office is concerned and this is this is part of it essentially so um as pierre says in his blog post it's it, you know there was no process before so it's it's to be welcomed that there is a process now However, it's pretty complicated. It looks like there's three different forms depending on exactly what your situation is. Um, some of them are really quite lengthy ones, sort of 27 pages, I think Pierre says one of them is. Um, so it, it's not a straightforward process. There's no legal aid to help with this stuff. Um, and how they're supposed to navigate it themselves is is frankly a bit of a mystery. Yeah, Bid do do great work uh, trying to help people. But um, uh, so, yeah, and if there's practitioners who are involved in this issue, that briefing by Pierre is, is really useful. There is then still in the world of det detention a interesting high court case on damages for unlawful detention, and that is Holonia and Secretary of State's 2019 EWHC 794 admin. The level of damages here was increased because the person who turned out to have been unlawfully detained went on hunger strike. Um, this is just a similar held that, yes, that was his choice to go on hunger strike, and yes, he was adequately cared for during that hunger strike, um, but it did increase his suffering. Um, so an extra £5,000 was awarded on top of 32000 basic compensation, um, and it was 153 days unlawful detention. I think the hunger strike was sort of periodic through that. Um, 
uh, Alex, who wrote the piece, says that unfortunately hunger strikes and detention aren't that rare. Yeah, I, and I, I don't have much direct contact with people in this situation. So I, I, yeah, I don't do a huge amount of unlawful detention case, but I, I understand that Alex is, is right about that. And what, what's one of the things that's interesting to me about this case is we're talking about a really substantial period of, deep, uh, of detention. 153 days is a long time to be in detention when you're an EU national. And this is one of many cases where the Home Office... Um, has acted unlawfully. There's a whole bunch of them going through the courts, and it's, it looks like it's going to cost the the UK a lot of money. Basically, this this bit of um, very poor behaviour by the Home Office. Yeah, we've seen a few of these High Court decisions on on damages uh, reporters. Um, Stephen Knight seems to be doing a few of them. This was one of his cases. Um, uh, try, sort of really trying to push the boat out on on the level of compensation. So we'll, we'll see how they go. Let's go then to a few more cases on immigration appeals, so the more technical side of, of immigration law. There was a controversial decision in ULA and Secretary of State 2019 EWCA Civ 550. In this case, Mr. ULA had been granted indefinitely to remain after an appeal to the First Tier Tribunal, but the Home Office later revoked that indefinitely to remain after it got a tip-off with new evidence that he wasn't entitled to it after all. Were they allowed to do that? No, I, I, well, I actually disagree with the okay. on this one. I, I, it doesn't seem that surprising to me, actually. Sort of, um, I may, maybe maybe he, he's sort of more clued up on sort of general public law principles on this than I am. But um, you know, Ladin Marshall is a very well-known case. Um, he, it, it's relied on by appellant lawyers um, in in immigration proceedings to introduce new evidence where it where it applies, which is pretty seldom, it has to be said. You know, the, the Ladon Marshall tests aren't easy ones to, to satisfy in an appeal. Um, but it, it doesn't surprise me that, you know, the boot can also be on the other foot and that therefore the Home Office um, is able also to rely on it in, in immigration cases. And it's it, 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 on the face of it, it's pretty unfortunate because we're talking about um, an allowed appeal, um, Home Office getting hold of... Um, evidence that I'm not very clear how good the evidence was or whatever about it being um, uh, the ILR grant being on, on an incorrect basis and so on and um, yeah they, they, they get away with not implementing the appeal on that basis but um, it, it on the matter of principle of Ladd and Marshall applying and the Home Office being able to, to, to bring in new evidence that wasn't uh, earlier, uh, uh, previously available to them, that doesn't actually surprise me that much. Okay, well, uh, people can uh, read Alex's take and uh, make up their own minds whether whether they agree. Yeah, good to have a bit of editorial uh, divergence occasionally. Exactly, there's no no dictatorship here. Um, next, uh, in immigration appeals, who decides when an immigration appeal ends? Um, in other words, if the person taking the appeal wants to withdraw it, are they allowed to? I would have assumed the answer is just yes, obviously, but the tribunal has made rather a meal of it. Um, it had previously held that actually you need the tribunal's permission to discontinue an appeal, but now a different tribunal has overruled that and said that appellants get to decide for themselves whether to drop an appeal. Um, the case is Anwar Rule 17-1, Withdrawal of Appeal 2019 UK UT 125 IAC, uh, and it uh, seems pretty sensible to me, really, Carl. Yeah, I agree. And it, it seems surprising that um, you might need permission to withdraw a statutory appeal. You, you do need permission to withdraw a judicial review, so it wouldn't be you know, completely beyond the realms of possibility, I suppose. Um, but with a statutory appeal, I think the decision of uh, Mr Justice McCloskey came as a bit of a surprise to, to everyone. Um, and we can see this is another example of um, Mr Justice McCloskey's 
legacy being gradually erased by um, sort of longer standing immigration judges than, than, than him. He sort of came into the immigration tribunal and has disappeared again. Some of, um, some of the things that we're seeing erased are matters to be regretted, you know, some, some really quite good progressive decisions from him. Others of them are a bit more left field, and this was sort of one of the, the latter, I think. So, yeah, it's good to see it being clarified that if you want to withdraw an appeal, you can. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, finally, it feels it is uh, a year uh, to this week, I believe, since GDPR came in, the infamous uh, EU data protection regulation. And somebody has taken that and run with it in the Immigration Tribunal to argue that appeals from abroad over a video link are a breach of GDPR. Um, perhaps uh, a, little, a little creative, the, the person question, I think, wants to come back in person for their appeal, I think is the kind of backstory, and so try to sort of attack the lawfulness of the video link. Um, but the Upper Tribunal basically says there's no GDPR issue here. The case is CJ International Video Link Hearing Data Protection Jamaica 2019 UK UT 126 IAC. Yeah, I've got nothing to add on this one. Um, CJ is no relation, I assume. <laughs> and um, that's, that, 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 that's all to say on that. I, I don't believe I have any uh, relations in Jamaica, I have to say. Um, Grand, getting to the end now of this month's update, we'll just look at some EU free movement law, which is still relevant as Brexit is sort of on hiatus for the time being. Uh, no major developments there uh, in the last few weeks. In the Court of Justice of the European Union, there has been case C48317, Tarola and Minister for Social Protection. This is about retaining the status of worker uh, under EU law. The question being, how long do you need to have been working to trigger that worker status in the first place? And the finding seems significant enough that uh, just two weeks work gets you work status, which you can then retain for six months out of work. Yeah, and it, it, it's, if I sort of correct you slightly on that, it's not just that you can retain, it's that you do retain. And that, that's the interesting thing about this judgment. And what, what I haven't done, I've been meaning to do, is is go back and just have another look at the the UK's regulations on this because I don't think the UK's regulations really reflect this actually I think um, you know they, they do impose an additional test for you to show that you've retained worker status um, so I, th I think this this judgment is quite an interesting one it's 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 useful and um, I think there's certainly a, a possibility that um, UK law doesn't really properly implement it wouldn't be the first time uh, I think we've discovered um, Jolly good. An interesting Court of Appeal decision then on Zambrano carers. Uh, now, these cases often involve uh, non-EU citizens caring for British children and having the right to live in the, in the UK to do that. Uh, but this case was about a British adult being looked after by her Malaysian daughter. And the end result was that the daughter was able to stay as a Zambrano carer. Uh, the court said that, quote, the test in the case of adult dependence is a very demanding one, which will be met only exceptionally, end quote. Um, but it was met in this case, uh, an exceptional one, I suppose. Uh, the citation is MS Malaysia, um, Antarctic State 2019, EWCA Civ 580. Yeah, and it's it's a good decision, as as Bilal says in his his very good write up of this. It's quite surprising, frankly, that the Secretary of State tried to appeal this. Um, you know, the, it looks on the face of it like um, a strong set of facts. Zambrano cases are largely about the facts, and um, you know, what were they? What, what was the Home Office trying to achieve here? Um, was it really to leave an eighty seven year old British citizen in the care of social services rather than in the care of a, a loving family member? Um, in this sort of bizarre pursuit of, of some sort of 
broader immigration sort of policy it's just you know these, these can be really inhuman inhumane decisions um so it's, it's it's nice to see a good outcome and this is this is one of the only cases that we've seen i think reported where it is i think i think there's there's maybe been one other but there's certainly not very many been on adult um dependent uh, carers so um again it's good to see some sort of precedent for for other future cases as well yeah good to sort of be aware that that is a possibility for for adult dependents uh, finally, then, a fairly technical case on EU appeals called Monday, that's spelled with a U. Uh, Monday, EEA decision, grounds of appeal, 2019, UKUT 91, IAC. And in that, the tribunal held that in appeals against EU residence decisions, the appellant cannot rely on human rights arguments, only on EU law arguments. Yeah, and, and we, we wrote it up with that, exactly that title, EU citizens cannot rely on human rights and appeals against refusals. And that's that's nothing new, frankly. So uh, why it was reported on, on that, I'm not quite so sure. But w- when I started to have a look through this decision, it's a Surinder Singh case, which always sort of grabs my attention. And it did strike me that the tribunal had gone potentially quite badly wrong on the facts of this, because it was a clearly genuine Surinder Singh case. It's, it's, an, it's, it's a British citizen who was actually working for the commission, I think, for several years. Um, so it was completely legitimately um, abroad, no question of that, um, and therefore surely had automatically acquired Surinder Singh rights, even if the Home Office had basically messed up repeatedly in in, in granting a, a residence card. So um, yeah, I'm not quite sure why this got reported. You know, on the on the issue, it's reported it's kind of trite law already, and then they seem to get it potentially quite badly wrong on on some of the sort of substance of it as well. So. Um, not not a great decision, frankly. We said in the last podcast that we try to finish on a positive note in these uh, discussions. And this month, uh, a positive note perhaps is that the compensation scheme for victims of the Windrush scandal has been set up. And Nick Mason has written an article all about how to apply. Um, now, Nick has also written another article uh, all about the flaws in the design of the scheme and saying it's uh, quite terrible in many ways, but um, that's not quite in keeping with our desire for an upbeat conclusion to the podcast. So uh, do we want to go into to those issues, Colin? Um I think let, let's, let it suffice to be said that um, there are you know, potential flaws in the way that the scheme operates. And you know, let's hold, the, let's hold the Home Office to account by their own standards here. They're expecting to pay out £310 million to victims um, let's see whether they, they can get close to that um, or, or, or maybe even whether they, they go higher than that because if if they're not paying out that sort of amount of money, it suggests there is something wrong with the design of the scheme and that you know it, it's not as easy to use or accessible as the Home Office say so. Absolutely. Uh, well, if people are uh, putting in applications or advising on applications for compensation, uh, Nick's post is, is hopefully helpful. Um, as I say, he's done two, one critical and one just a straight how to do it. Okay, well, I think that pretty much wraps up for this month, actually, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's us. A uh, lot, lot of ground covered. Uh, hopefully helpful. Okay, hope we, we hope that was helpful and we'll be back next month. Goodbye.